first of all, let me say thank you for being here tonight. Let me also say thank you to James White for an incredible exposition of First Corinthians chapter 12. It was biblically faithful. Uh, it was theologically rich. And it was practically so insightful. And uh, I pray with all of my heart that we will take to heart what he taught us tonight about each one of us being a valuable part of the body of Christ. My assignment is to talk to you about the church as the temple, the temple of God. The word temple appears in different ways throughout the Bible. First, of course, it referred to a physical structure that was built by King Solomon in the Old Testament era. It was a glorious, majestic structure. But because the people of Israel were disobedient, the nation of Judah was disobedient, Nebuchadnezzar swooped down as the Babylonian Empire destroyed much of the world, including Israel, and he destroyed that magnificent structure. Later, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles were allowed to return to the land, and they rebuilt the temple, although it is said that the elders wept because it did not have anything approaching the glory of the original temple. Later, a very evil person, King Herod, uh, would add to the structure, and he indeed would make it magnificent and something unbelievable. Uh, it was known as Herod's Temple, but in A.D. 70, Titus, the Roman general, came in and destroyed Jerusalem and once more destroyed that temple. Later, according to some Bible teachers, and I would fall into this camp, there's going to be a rebuilt physical structure during the time of the tribulation, the end of the time, the end of the age, it's discussed in Revelation chapter 11. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, when we are in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, we are told that there is no longer any temple because the Lord is their temple. But in 1 Corinthians, the word temple appears twice, at least in terms of how it is used. First, it occurs in chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. So I would direct you there for just a moment because that's not where I'm going to spend most of my time tonight. But in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple? He's talking to the whole body of believers at the church at Corinth. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. But then the idea of the temple appears again, and this time more personally, more individually, although again, Paul would say something, I believe, like this, though there are many temples within a local body of believers, those many temples, the many individual believers, the many parts of the body do constitute a whole temple being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 
through verse 20 is that your body is important because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body, this physical thing that God has given you, is important because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, to get the context, I want to begin reading in verse 9 down to the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to jump in and make several observations this evening from these verses of Scripture. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know? Now, let me stop right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 has been called by some the do you not know chapter. You say, why? Because the phrase occurs six times. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And again, verse 15, I jump past it. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So here in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but, number one, you were washed. Number two, you were sanctified. Number three, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in light of the fact that you are now new by means of your washing and your sanctification and your justification, look at how he unfolds our assignment and what God expects of us in verse 12 through verse 20. Now, stay with me. There's several uh, exegetical points that are crucial that you must understand if we are going to rightly interpret these verses, all right? So, look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Now, stop. I believe, like a number of Bible teachers, that Paul is responding in verses 12 through 20 to what were called Corinthian slogans. In other words, Paul at times in these verses is going to tell us not what he thinks, but what was being said wrongly and falsely at the church at Corinth. And one of those phrases that I believe was being battered about at Corinth was the phrase, all things are lawful for me. You say, you don't think Paul believes that? No, I don't think Paul believed that at all because Paul counterpunches. Not all things are helpful. Again, at Corinth, all things are lawful for me. Paul counterpunches. I will not be enslaved by anything. Verse 13, another Corinthian slogan. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Though Paul doesn't say it, I also suspect another Corinthian slogan that was being bantered about was sex for the body and the body for sex, all right? Paul counterpunches. God will destroy, they said, both one and the other. Paul says, no, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, 
and the Lord is for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, and he goes back and quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, free sexual immorality. Corinthian slogan comes next. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. You say, Danny, you left out the word other. It's not in the original text. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. That's not true, but that's what the Corinthians were saying. Paul responds, the sexually immoral person actually sins against his own body. And then the crux of his argument, verse 19 and verse 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Your body is important because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want to do very quickly is make five observations from this text that will, I think, validate my thesis that your body is important because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Number one, God has principles for our body because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has principles for our body because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word body is very important in these verses. It occurs no less than eight times. Another key phrase that occurs in the English text is the phrase sexual immorality that occurs three times. Now, here's what's going on. At Corinth, they had been afflicted and infected by a kind of platonizing idea that said something like this. My material person does not matter. It does not have any value. Plato said the, 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 the body is the prison house of the soul. So in this platonistic way of thinking, they thought, well, my soul is what matters. My spirit is what matters. Who, who I am on the inside is all that really matters. What I am on the outside really doesn't matter because this material thing that I have is at best inferior and probably even evil. And so Paul is having to counter that because that is a thoroughly unbiblical an unchristian way of thinking. And I'll unwrap this for you even in more detail in just a moment. So Paul then comes back and begins to lay out for the Corinthians some basic principles that will help them understand that their body is important. Why? Because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we are going to see very quickly are six principles that Paul gives us with respect to our body and how we handle our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'll do it in the form of six questions 
that every temple of the Holy Spirit, that's you and that's me, should be asking when they are encountering the different issues of life, all right? So here's the first principle that you see there in verse 12. Will this action build me up? Will this action build me up and make me better. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, the Corinthians said. Doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's inferior. It's evil. It's what I am on the inside that matters. And so it doesn't matter. I can indulge. I can eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow I will die. All things are lawful for me. And Paul says, no, all things are not helpful. All things are not beneficial. All things do not build you up. And all things do not build up the body of Christ, which is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. So before you engage in any kind of activity, Paul says, ask the question, is this good for me? Is this good for the church? Is it going to build us up and make us better in Jesus? Principle number two, will this action enslave my soul? Will this action enslave my soul? Look again at verse 12. The Corinthians said, all things are lawful for me. Paul responds, I will not be enslaved by anything. I will not allow anything that can bring me into emotional, psychological, or even chemical bondage. I am going to stay away from those things that have the potential of enslaving me. So Paul would say just very practically that ought to impact and influence the things you look at. That ought to impact and influence the things you listen to. That ought to impact and influence places you go. In other words, there's just some things that wisdom, it, it, you say, well, Danny, are you saying certain things are sinful? I'm not going to get into a tit-for-tat kind of thing tonight. I'm just going to simply say that there are some things in life that have such great potential for enslavement, the wise thing to do is just stay away. Cut yourself off from those things and avoid the horror and the trauma and the disaster that comes by being addicted to those types of things. So he says, ask the question, will this particular action enslave me? Principle number three, will this action exalt the Savior? Will this action exalt and bring glory to the Savior? Now, that particular principle is found over in chapter 10 and verse 31, a very familiar verse. Just look at it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so Paul says there is this all-encompassing principle that we ask ourselves, and it's simply this, can I do this particular thing and glorify God in the midst of doing it? Now, again, we can become overly scrupulous in this area so that we virtually wind up not being anything more than a monk or a nun. And that's not at all what God is asking because God wants you to be light and to be salt out there in this fallen, broken world, all right? So he wants us out there engaging real people in real life, all right? But he also says there's an attitude that accompanies you when you do the things that you do. And you have to ask yourself the question, am I doing this in such a way that I am honoring and glorifying Jesus 
in it. I'll be very honest uh, with you all this evening. I I don't do very well here when it comes to driving. I I just don't. Because there are too many idiots out there on the road. that There just are. I mean, there are these, these people. I don't know what gets into them. It must be a demon. They get in the left lane in the expressway, and they drive 60 or 65 miles an hour, not realizing that is the 80-mile-an-hour lane, all right? Now, again, you're saying, well, you're breaking the law. I know. (laughs) And God has dealt with me again and again and again. In fact, I'm just curious. I shouldn't even do this, but I feel kind of loose tonight. How many of you in this room? How many of you, oh, you're too young, but I'll ask anyway. There are a few of you oldie goldies here. How many of you in this room are in double digits when it comes to the number of speeding tickets you have received? Would you raise your hand if you are in double digits? <laughs> and the first number is about, a flip, about to flip to a two. You say, well, why do you think that's the case? Because God judges me. God keeps telling me, you're not going to get away with this. What you're doing is sinful, and, it's, and I try to break it, but my right foot is just not sanctified yet. I'm working on it, you know, but, but it, it just keeps pushing down. And, and so I, I confess, when, when I get out there, if I don't get really, really like prayed up in advance and then actually consciously say, all right, it's going to be hard. It's going to be like super, super hard, but whether I eat, drink or drive today i'm going to try to do it to the glory of god and i'm just telling you there are areas in your life like my area that are not easy they're not something that just comes natural to you you get mad you get angry you get slothful you get lazy i can go in all sorts of directions and yet the bible says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do you are to do it to the glory of God. You're to make Jesus happy by the way you do it. All right? Principle number four. Will this action encourage other saints? Will this action encourage other saints? You find this particular principle in chapter 8 and verse 13. Just look at it very quickly. Chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, we don't have the problem today that they did in the first century with meat sacrificed to idols that then were brought, bought at a cut rate and brought into the home. And some people that had just come to Christ and had a weak conscience would be offended by that. And so that's not our problem. So when I deal with this particular verse, I just remember, remove the word food, and I just put, therefore, if blank, if blank, if whatever, makes my brother stumble, I will never again do blank, lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, if you want to have this, really I could summarize all six of them with this next statement, but this statement really can be summarized in this way. Love always regulates my liberty. Love always regulates my liberty. My love for the soul of a lost man or woman, my love for a weaker brother, will regulate my liberty so that even though in Jesus I have the freedom to do this thing, because it will hurt or harm a lost person, hurt or harm a weaker brother or sister, I just gladly, for love's sake, love of the Savior and love for them, 
I just sooner set it aside and I don't engage it because their soul is more important than my liberty. Their soul is more important than my liberty. Principle number five, will this action help evangelize sinners? Will this action help evangelize sinners? Paul deals with this both in chapter 9 and also in chapter 10, but let's look at chapter 9 in verse 19. Chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all. Why, Paul? That I might win more of them. So to the Jews, I act like a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, that is Jews, I become as one under the law, though I realize now in Christ I'm not under the law, but I do this that I might win those who are under the law. Also, to those outside the law, that is Gentiles, I become as one outside the law. Now, I'm not outside the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ, which is the law of love, but I do this, why? That I might win those outside the law. And so just to summarize, to the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. In fact, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. And so Paul says, if this action is not going to help me reach lost people with the gospel, then I will willingly set aside my liberty in this area because the souls of lost people matter more than me exercising my liberty. Number six, will this action emulate my Savior? Will this action emulate my Savior? This is the WWJD principle. What would Jesus do? And you say, well, that's not in the Bible. It most certainly is. Chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, Paul says. How? As I am of Christ. Several years ago, I heard the very famous British theologian, uh, N.T. Wright, talking about raising teenagers, which many of you are teenagers. And he's British, and so being a Brit, they like to make fun of us Americans in particular, what they consider to be sloppy, shallow, evangelical. Just, you know, it's not very thoughtful. You're not very reflected. You don't think very well. And he said, you know, for years I was part of the, of the team that made fun of those Americans with their little cheap slogans like the little slogan, what would Jesus do? He said, I thought that was just a silly thing. And we mocked the Americans and we made fun of the Americans and we made fun of their evangelical churches and said, then I had teenagers. And then all of a sudden, asking the question, what would Jesus do, didn't seem to be so shallow and stupid anymore. Because I began to think, I would really kind of like it if my son and daughter, when they're out there and I'm not out there with them, watching over them, I'd kind of be really happy if before they do anything, they would ask the question, what would Jesus do? Now, let me just say this and I move on. It is a good question. But if you don't know the Bible, you can't come up with the right answer. So you can ask, what would Jesus do all you want? But if you don't know the word, you can't come up with the right answer. So Paul is very concerned that we indeed would be as little temples, positive contributors to the big temple. And so he says, God has principles for our body, and he just lays out for us six beautiful ones. Now, we're going to pick up the pace. Number two, going back to chapter six, God has plans for my body. 
God has plans for my body, and we see this in verse 13 and also in verse 14. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, I have no doubt that that was a Corinthian slogan. You say, why would you say that? Because it's not true. It's not true. Food for the stomach, well, that's right. The stomach for food, that's right. And God's going to destroy both one and the other. That's not right. Let me do a little theology with you now, all right? A little audience participation here. This thing here called a stomach is a part of this thing called a what? Body, all right? Question. Is God going to destroy your body? No. What is God going to do with your body? He's going to glorify it. He's going to resurrect it, and he's going to glorify it. See, Christianity was foreign to Greek philosophy. Christianity has always had a very high view of the body. Why? Because God made it, and everything God makes is what? Good. And so God is not going to destroy food. We're going to have a wonderful banquet and feasting for all of eternity in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. But God is not going to destroy your stomach, which is a part of your body, because he's going to glorify it. And to make that point, just look at how Paul drives home his argument. He says there in verse 14, or verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. You say, what's that got to do with food, Danny? I told you a moment ago. The Corinthians were saying food for the stomach, the stomach for food. God will destroy both it and both of them. They were also saying sex for the body, the body for sex, and God will destroy both. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The body, first of all, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Furthermore, the Lord is for the body. God is pro-body, all right? And to make the point, God raised up the Lord in other words, when Jesus died, did God destroy his body? No. God resurrected his body, and God glorified his body, and he's going to do the exact same thing with your body and my body. The Lord raised up, God raised up the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. His argument is simply this. In light of where your body is headed, you ought to treat your body as sacred today because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In light of where your body is going and it's going to be glorified, it ought to impact the way you treat and use your body today because God has a plan for your body. Number three, God has protection for your body. God has protection for your body. That's the theme of verses 15 through 18. Look at it. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There we're back. He's kind of anticipating what James talked about a moment ago with the body analogy, all right? So, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So, I have a question. Shall I then take the members of Christ, that is you, your body, and join them and make them members of a whore, of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For as it is written, Genesis 2:24, the two will become one flesh. But, verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord 
becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, and it's in the form of an imperative, word of command, flee from sexual immorality. The Corinthians were saying, every sin a man, a person does is outside the body. Paul says, no, sexual immorality, the sexually immoral person, he actually sins against his own body. Now, I just want to emphasize one thing and then move on. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Back to verse 15. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Paul says, never. Never. Now, what is Paul's argument here and what is he trying to say? Let me give it to you in this kind of illustration. Imagine tomorrow when this conference ends, you make your way home, and when you arrive at your home, wherever you live, Jesus is waiting on you. I mean, he's like waiting on you in the flesh. He's right there. I mean, you can look at him, you can touch him, you can talk with him, just like I'm talking to you right now, and Jesus is there, and Jesus says, I want to tell you something. I have decided I'm going to spend the next week with you. The next seven days, I'm going to be with you 24-7. And just let me be clear. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I mean, we're going to be just like that. I'm going to go where you go. And I'm just going to jump in and just be a part of your life in the most intimate possible way. So where you go, I'll go. Uh, what you listen to, I'll listen to. Uh, what you watch, I'll watch. And what you do with your body, I'll just jump in and participate with you. Now, I have a question. How many of you would live this coming week maybe different than you lived last week because he's going to be with you 24-7 in that kind of intimate way? Here's the deal. If you're here tonight and you have repented of your sin and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus and he is indeed your Lord, your Savior, your master, your king, understand very well, already, where you go, he goes. What you do, you involve him in, because what did the text say? He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And brothers and sisters, I just want you to know that when you are aware of how intimately involved the Lord is, is, and he's giving this to you to protect you. He's giving you this wonderful theological principle to guide you so that you will take this wonderful thing, this wonderful gift he has given you called your body and treat it in a way that is honoring to him and good for you. You see, God never asks us to do anything that's not good for us. He's a good God who only gives good gifts to his children. And so when he says there in verse 18, run as fast as you can from sexual immorality, he's not telling you to do that because he wants to hurt you. He's telling you that because he wants to bless you and do what is good for you. And so the Bible teaches us that God has protection for our body. Don't you ever forget the sacred union that you have with Jesus. And as a result of that, just do whatever you have to do to run as fast and as far away from sexual immorality as you possibly can. Principle number four, God has possession of your body. 
God has possession of your body. Look at what he says there again in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is what? It is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. It's interesting, that word temple is the Greek word naos. It is the same word that is used in the Greek language for the holy of holies. Think back to the temple where you've got the court and then you've got the temple structure proper and you have that area that's known the holy place, but inside where the ark was, inside where the sacrifice would be made, in there it is referred to as what? The holy of holies, the most sacred place in all of the temple. And that is the word that Paul uses when he talks about you and me as temples of the Holy Spirit. We are a sacred place. We are a holy place. We are a special place, uniquely and wonderfully indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. God has possession of your body. In fact, how does he say it? You are not your own. You're not your own. In other words, you don't belong to you anymore. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to another, and his name is Jesus. And yes, there is a sense in which the master-slave relationship can be a horrible, ugly, terrible thing, but there's another sense in which the master-slave relationship is wonderful when the master is Jesus because he is the most loving, wonderful, precious master. Not only is he your master, he's your elder brother. And not only that, he is your friend. Now, that's a different kind of master. And here's the deal, brothers and sisters. I don't care who you are tonight. I don't care. Everybody is a slave to somebody or to something. Everybody is a slave to somebody or to something. Well, then you ought to make the wise decision and be a slave of the one who loves you more than anyone else in all of the universe and make your master the Lord Jesus Christ. He is good to his slaves. He even makes them sons and daughters. But finally, God has paid for your body. He says there in verse 19, you're not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. And what was the price? Well, Peter tells us it wasn't gold or silver or precious stone, but the precious blood of God's Son. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. Therefore, God absolutely has the right to say at the end of verse 20, so you glorify, you magnify, you honor in your body, your God, your Lord, your Savior. I close with this. God is God. And so God can live anywhere he wants to live. And of all places, God decided that the place he would like to live more than any place else is inside of you and inside of me. Now, think about that. He can live anywhere, but he wants to live inside of you, and he wants to live inside of me. You see, your body is important because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this wonderful passage that is full of theological truth, but also incredible, incredible application. 
And Lord, you have indeed given us a mind, a soul, and a body. And all of who we are is important to you because all of it together constitutes the image of God in a man and in a woman. And God, we're not Greek Platonists. We don't think the body is the prison house of the soul. We don't think this, this material creation that embodies our soul is something that is inferior or even evil. No, we think our body is a good thing. Now, we realize in this broken, fallen world, we have broken, fallen bodies, but we also know that just as you resurrected and glorified the Lord Jesus, you have promised us you're going to resurrect and glorify us as well. And so, Lord, because our bodies matter to you, then let them matter to us. And because you teach us that our bodies is indeed the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, a holy, sacred thing, may we treat this body that you have given us with respect. May we honor it as the sacred, precious, holy vessel that it is. And, Lord, in light of where we're headed, glory may we use our body today to glorify you all for your glory but also for our great good and we ask you to bless this and do this in jesus name we pray amen